My name is Lubuntu Webster. It's time for Ubuntu Life. Welcome to the very first installment of Ubuntu Live. My name is Nobuntu Webster and I am incredibly excited about this installment, our very first episode. I have two women that I absolutely adore, two women that I absolutely respect uh, for who they are and for the work that they do. And I'm looking forward to this conversation with them. We have this conversation on the backdrop of... International Women's Day, which was in March, and I remember sitting on International Women's Day feeling quite defeated, and I have to be honest about that. I remember sitting and feeling like, break the bias, we're still here, and the reason for that is that I had been in rooms full of men for maybe two weeks before that where I was the only woman and it was rooms that needed women it was rooms and spaces that needed women desperately it was because I had had a call uh, the day before or a few days before from my mother about a woman that we know who is in an abusive marriage who had had her phone taken away from her after she had just had the opportunity to start working and the very tool that she was using from work was taken away from her in a violent act by her husband. So I sat after years of observing and commemorating International Women's Day actively and thought, but we're still here. We're still here. And that is really what it felt like. So I invited these two women to talk to me today because they're doing incredible work in women advancement in two very different sectors and very different spaces, but they're doing incredible work. And I want to speak to them because I feel like they will know, they'll know better what's happening on the ground. I feel like they will have experiences of what is happening in policy spaces. I feel like they will have an idea of what we can expect in the future, but more than anything, an idea of what we can do differently. Mm. You know, I feel like it's time to do things differently in many spaces, particularly in women advancement. I think it's time to do things differently. So I'm going to introduce these ladies to you and we're going to get this conversation going. And I trust that at the end of this conversation, we're going to be ignited and we're going to be hopeful no pressure, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm with Uolwe Tule Shabani, and she's an award-winning media entrepreneur. She's a wife. She's a mom of three boys, and she's a doula. She's a speaker, MC, TV presenter, blogger, podcaster, and social media content creator. She's also a strategic creative producer. Uolwe is a maternal health and women advancement advocate, and she is the founder of Art of Superwoman. At its core, Art of Superwoman is a content development and distribution multimedia platform for predominantly women. And it is also a marketing platform and an online retail marketplace for various women-owned brands. I'm so excited to have you here, <laughs> Oloto. And I think one of the reasons is because I feel like you've turned something that we know as digital influence into something that's really making 
a difference in the ecosystem of women advancement. So I'm really excited. We've also got Unam Flamnegi with us. She is co-chair of the Women Economic Assembly in South Africa, a national action platform launched by President Sora Ramaphosa in October 2021 to create opportunities for South African women business owners in public and prior sector supply value chains. She's also the Deputy Director General within the private office of the President of the Republic of South Africa, and she leads the Generation Equality Program for Women's Economic Empowerment. She's also an experienced CEO in the development space and a development economist with an MBA from the Graduate School of Business at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. I'm excited to have Namsla here. And it's not just because of this incredible bio that I've just read, it's because I also know her heart. I know her heart for all things development and I've experienced it. You know, I get to drink from her well from time to time as somebody who I consider a mentor in my life. So really, really pleased to have you both ladies. So maybe let's start here. We're here. We're in this picture that I've painted when it comes to women's advancement and you're here doing the work that you both do. I'm going to start first with you already too. What is the trajectory? How did you get into this work that you're doing? Have you always wanted to work with women's advancement or women's development or in spaces with women? I think it's a calling. <laughs> I think women's work, by virtue of being a woman, we're called to be something higher than you know how we come into the world, right? By virtue of being born a woman or girl, you're, you're a political body. Sure. So I think no matter how the trajectory of my life would have gone, um, because I started off studying property and I finished my property um, courses, my property qualifications, um, started working in the property business in my younger years, still in my younger years, but like in my younger, <laughs> younger years. And I found myself in the media space and in the um, in the agency spaces, in the marketing space. And then, you know, getting into um, the spotlight, getting into um, front of TV, front of camera work. And I just always knew there was something higher I'm being called for. Um, it's nice to make money, but I think you get thrust into these spaces sometimes and you realize that there's such purpose work to be done if I'm to rise and grow in whatever I'm doing. And I always say, I don't know what I'm doing. But let them call it what they want. You know, let God use me and let them call it what they want. Because I've, I've recognized that um, in any movement, in anything that I'm doing, whatever's holding me back or whatever barriers there are to get to where I want to go um, are purely because I'm a woman, are purely because I'm a political body, are purely because I'm a mother or somebody's wife. Yeah. And that will always be a something I have to like step over. It's a fence I must climb. It's a hill I'm climbing every single day when I wake up. So yeah, that's, that's literally how I got to do or be what I am. Um, it's the consciousness as well of the effect of my waking up every morning, the effect of my vote, mm -hmm. the effect of the choices I make of where I'm taking my kids to school. They come back and they impact me in my own home in any way possible. How I move, what I do, how I speak impacts me at home every single day and it's just a raising our awareness and raising other women's awareness around me to that amazing i love what you say about it being a call and it being something 
you were going to be in anyway. There's this quote of yours, you know, I post mm. it all the time. <laughs> Something like, oh, Lord, let me let me do what you've called me to and let them call it whatever they want to call mm, it. Right. I love that. Right. I yeah, love that. that's beautiful. Namsa, what has it been for you? How did you get here? Well... That is a long story of over 40 years. <laughs> but you know what? I think Oloetu started brilliantly in saying that this is a calling because I knew in my teenage years already that I would do something related to poverty alleviation. So that's my life's work. I think my life's work is to essentially ensure that this continent transforms and transforms in meaningful ways. Um, so my studies, my earlier career were, were, you know, tuned to that. I was very clear from the beginning what I needed to do. And I think the rest of it um, has really just been a journey of grace because at every step of the way, God has been quite faithful in directing that path. I think what I brought to the table was some level of clarity, sort of like early level of clarity, and then a fairly, a fair amount of personal character that was built by my parents. And so I was clear about work ethic and commitment. And then just as a, as a person, I'm quite involved. I'm quite engaged. And so I'm 120% all the time, right? So I think the combination of those things and then the ability of God to use that as the initial ingredients to direct my path has been great. In my mid thirties, I was already leading, uh, you know, uh, a continental organization that was getting global prominence within the United Nations and so on. So globally was getting quite a bit of visibility and everywhere I went as executive director of African Monitor, one of the voices I heard was women who were in the room, by the way, who were either on the scale or the spectrum of really being angry because voice just wasn't there. Visibility was there in my space because we were dealing with governments and like high powered people. But um, generally the people that were making decisions or were in the forefront were men. So even if women were in the room because the quotas had to be met, but the voices of women in the room couldn't be met. And God had already taken me through a process where I knew what my voice was and what I brought in rooms. And I I always carried the identity of the village girl. I always said, like, you know, barefooted village girl. But I would be in the room with my voice shaking, but voice was always important. And voice was something that God had curated early, early on. So I was always speaking. And I think because of that, I got executive level women who would come and say, how do we find our voice in the same way that you're using your voice? Wow. And in that point, I think it was like sort of early 30s, mid 30s, where I realized I actually had to work with women, not just like work broadly in the policy space. So then I got into leadership training and mentoring and coaching. Early on, really, I didn't even see myself as that. I sort of saw myself as I have friends who I advise, essentially. <laughs> it took me a very long time to own that space. But after I had done my MBA, in leadership and I was invited by the Ellen Gray um, Leadership Center to be an associate, then I realized I kind of like needed to formalize this in some way. So the work I do now, I mentioned that, which is kind of like an underlying element of some of my career work. I mentioned it because I think these have now come together in the office of the president, because while I'm a development economist, it was only until two years ago that I focused specifically on women's empowerment. And for me, it feels like the coming together of my training, which is like economic development and policymaking, and my other work I was doing as a passion in terms of just empowering women um, to essentially find their voice and find what they're supposed to be doing in the world. And in this space, 
I think it's just such an incredible opportunity to really just change things in meaningful ways, working with incredibly amazing women, particularly in South Africa, but across the continent, who themselves are like pretty phenomenal, right? There's not much work to be done around making women phenomenal, but there's some work to be done around creating the policy spaces and connecting them to those environments where they can really kind of like accelerate as it were. And that's essentially what I do, but it is a calling. I love that. I love that. And one of the things I'm hearing in what you're saying is that you're currently in a space where you come into contact with women and have been actually even in your previous role and get to know what the realities are, right? you know, that women are experiencing. So what are those? I mean, I, I really... I really want to know from somebody like you who is in policy development yeah. now meeting women on the ground, meeting women in these spaces, meeting women in the marketplace. What is, what does that look like? What are the yeah. realities that women face? And that's the complexity of it, actually, to be yeah. honest, because when you look at women individually, it's literally shocking how phenomenal women are and how much they make of little and how much they excel in those spaces. A lot of the times I'm interacting with women in the economic space. And so they are entrepreneurs. They're making, they're doing amazing things in the corporate environment. I could talk about GBV, but I want to focus on the economic side for, for today. And, um, and so the one side of the story is women that are making incredible strides in very, very difficult environments, right? Um, who find really innovative, creative ways to say, this is my dream, this is my vision, this is what I want to do for myself, for my family, for even nations, as it were, for my community and so on. But the other side of the story for me, I think, which breaks my heart is the, is the difficulty in the environment. Mm. An environment that seems to be peculiarly designed to stop women in their tracks. And I don't say that from a negative perspective. So I want to make some tangible examples that if you are a woman that comes in in a place like South Africa in the FMCG sector, let's take that as an example, and you start a company, you're going to have trouble, first of all, finding funding. We know that story. But even when you do have your own funding, say from family and so on, just getting your product on the Mm. shelf is a journey of a thousand miles because the buyers from these retailers don't take women seriously. Once they eventually come bring you in because they, they have to meet quotas, the next challenge is they are going to abuse you on pricing of your product. Yeah. So at every level of the system, what you're facing is actual structural barriers that seem to be perfectly designed. Like it's almost mm. like they curated to block women in their tracks. Sure. The reason why I'm grateful to God for the space that he's put me in is that I can use the voice of the president and say, I, I've, I've noticed there's a barrier here. Mm-hmm. We're going to bring the full weight of the system to destroy this barrier. So oftentimes in my work, I say we're like ninjas operating underground because we will find the difficult players in the economy mm-hmm. and we will do whatever it takes to break those barriers. But you need the women who are phenomenal entrepreneurs and then you need the ninjas like me yeah. who are going to go into the system and say, we're going to destroy whatever stops us from doing what we need to do. Sure. We're going to destroy whatever stops us from doing what we need to do. I'm going to yeah. come back to that a bit later because I like <laughs> that kind of talk. <laughs> I, I, like, I like that kind of talk. All right, so, so you work with 
um, a number of women-owned brands, mm. right? And by virtue of who you are, especially in the digital space, you also interact with women from all walks of life um, quite often. And I'm sure many of those are entrepreneurs, as Unamtla speaks about yeah. um, women who are in the entrepreneurship space. South Africa um, has an account of only 19.4% of women business owners. 19.4% of women business owners. And if you compare that to Uganda, uh, Uganda ranks first in the world mm. with 39.6%, Botswana with 38.5%, and Ghana 36.5%. In South Africa, mm. we're talking 19.4%. Why do you think that is? You know, what, what, what do you think are the things that women are facing that are kind of keeping them back or holding them back from starting businesses, growing businesses? I don't think there's anything holding women from starting businesses. I think the number is bigger. Um, sure. there's a lot more women in the informal sector. Mm. <laughs> I mean, just the other day, um, the new, in, on, on the news and in news articles, um, JMPD was rummaging through the city, destroying um, street vendors, and, you know, taking away all the food and the vegetables. These are people's mothers that, you know, are paying school fees. Sure. They are turning money back into the economy in that informal uh, sector. Yeah. The, the barriers to entry for women to register their businesses to upscale, to get rental spaces, yeah. to, I mean, the premise of that was go register your business or go register yourself as a vendor yeah. and, and get a vendor, street vendor certificate. Mm. You know? Yeah. These are mothers traveling. You, uh, so, you know, my mom-in-law, for example, she tells her story all the time. She's very proud of her story. She's managed to get five children through school by selling vegetables in downtown um, after hours. Her day job used to be working in an, um, at a factory, an Edcon factory back in the day when Edcon had a factory um, in Bulogwan. And she ended up um, losing her job because the Edcon factory was being moved from there. I think here to Joburg, but she could not leave her children or she could not displace her children or move her children either. Yeah. Um, and their father had just passed away. So she decided to then start a business, which is still running. She runs a pillow making factory business, um, in Sishiho. Um, she has a whole factory, right? But she had to start it by getting onto a train every morning, um, going to sorry every evening when the children were sleeping hmm. she would get onto the train in the evening come to Joburg stock up oh. by the time the kids woke up the following morning she was back. back oh wow wow you know so these are the people we're not taking into consideration yeah. when we're rummaging yeah. the streets of Johannesburg on the premise of a permit mm. That is in mm. itself a barrier to entry that all oh, mama to, you know, writing and reading. Are these permits in the languages of all oh, mama betu, the very same ones that are going to take that money, pay for school fees, um, pay for the food, pay for bread, 
that they they text just as much as as much as we are on all these things. And these are the small, simple things. So what we did on Art of Superwoman is there's um, one of the um, the suppliers that we have is Umama E in Parkhurst. Mm. I used to buy baskets for my house from her. Mm. Um, I love my bar- my woven baskets in my house. And during COVID lockdown, I, w- I was at a salon in Parkhurst doing my nails. And I saw, I'm like, ma, you know, let me get more baskets. You know, mm. we realized during lockdown how much washing you have yes. and how the baskets are never enough. So I'm buying two from her. And she says, Yom Danam, thank you. You know, we've been struggling. Yeah. And this was, I think, just when they had lowered the, um, the rig, the, the, the levels. Yes. yes. So we could go to the salons now and do our nails. And I said, what do you mean? She said, yo, there was no one here on the streets. No one was buying baskets during lockdown. We were alone here trying to sell. If you were lucky, you could sell a basket a month. Mm. And so I have Art of Superwoman online store. Umama has baskets. I mean, simple. Magic. Absolutely. Simple. You know? Absolutely. Simple. And I mean, now she's selling to more than like... There are more retailers and more online retailers that are buying from her. Mm. And all she has to do is go to Swaziland, bring the baskets back. She has to go back home, you know, down to Eastern Cape. One of the other people that work, she works with. Yeah. They go weave baskets in the Eastern Cape. They weave baskets in Swaziland. They across, they bring them and we sell them online. So would you say that some of the difficulties, I mean, listening to this, this mama story, mm. would you say that some of the difficulties are access to market? It's access. And, and it's access. not just access. It's the formalizing of their businesses, sure. right? It's the formalizing. Nobody is sitting on mama down to say, here are documents. Excuse me. Nobody is sitting on mama down and saying, here are the documents in your language. Fill out this to be an informal trader. In your language. In your language. Here are documents to be an informal trader. Right? And this is what you are going to need going forward. Mm. This is how you, you know, you, you go and you register a bank account. Because Basa Sabin Sama ShopRite sending, they send their money home, your ShopRite. They send their money home, what's the other one? It's ShopRite, it's Spa now. Yes. Mm. Where you can just put the money there. Yeah. And these are the small things that we're not taking into consideration. That's why we have a number like 19.4%. Yeah. We're not formalizing the informal sector. If, we're if not I can making it, it, we're not making it accessible. We're not for, making it accessible for you women know, to formalize. Exactly. Do you know how many women I would speak to during the lockdown with their husbands are the formal entrepreneurs? Yes. But they have side hustles that were saving their husbands' businesses during the lockdown. Sure. Um, I was speaking to finance, um, you know, during one of my lives during the lockdown, the financial service, services provider, um, financial advisors were saying women were saving their husbands during mm. lockdown. Mm. Informal businesses, mm. side hustles. And it's just barriers to entry. Yeah. The paperwork. Yeah. It's the language. It's not getting, helping women understand at their level what is needed for them yeah. to grow, to scale up, and to reach their businesses, grow and scale up. Yeah. Namsla, do you think that there's a level at which, or there's an extent to which 
policy mm-hmm. actually creates barriers? Well, I, certainly. I mean, I, and I think it, it does so unwittingly, but it does. Um, and there, there's a there's a much deeper question, I, I think, to what Olutu is talking about, because I think a, a nation like South Africa has, um, to too big an extent, has adopted ideas about what development looks like that are very foreign, that are very mm-hmm. westernized. Yeah. Um, and we speak a lot more, until very recently, we speak a lot more to the middle income status than to the status we truly are. So a, um, a country like Ghana or Senegal in West Africa um, recognizes informal cross-border traders as businesses, right? Yeah. But very, very simplified registration processes. And the ecosystem is actually created such that they can thrive. Like, like there's an actual ecosystem. And the way that we deal with informal in the informal sector in South Africa, number one is we insist go and register and be formalized, including registration with SARS and so on, which you wonder if you are an economy that's trying to expand, is that your priority Mm -hmm. or is the priority to get these informal sector businesses to be profitable, Mm. to make sure that you have sustainable revenues before you get to the insistence around the formal middle class requirements, as it were. And what we're trying to do now, I think, um, and I don't know that this is an idea that's permeated through the system yet, but we're trying to essentially say, sure, you've got really hyper-industrialized sectors in South Africa, but you also have sectors where women, young people are operating in the informal sector create the policy environment for that. One of the areas where we got stuck in in the system was we were trying to think about microfinance as an example. Most countries across Africa have microfinance policy frameworks. And so their informal sector thrives because when I go into a bank, particularly a government-related bank, I don't have to necessarily have all of these lists of things like registration, tax, um, you know, um, all of the things that we require in SA. But SA couldn't do that because because our legal framework is such that already it recognizes a business as one that is registered. Mm. So when you go to a bank and you are an informal person, either you borrow money as yourself as an individual or as a formal registered business with up-to-date tax returns. There's a massive gap between this is not me, it's my business. I have, I'm, I, I bake scones at home yeah. and I sell them. Yeah. And that gap, there's no policy framework. But the reason there's no policy framework is that the legal system itself doesn't exist to even recognize that. So those are some of the things that we're trying to close off right now. Like when you're not in the public sector and I wasn't in the public sector for years. Yeah. And you don't necessarily see what some of the difficulties are in the system which is why you need women everywhere. Like you need them in the public sector, outside the public sector, Mm -hmm. in business. Because once you are inside the system, you realize it's not just a matter of putting together a policy framework. It's also having to go to the back to the constitution Mm -hmm. and going back to the taxation laws and this law and that law. And you have to change all of them so that whatever policy framework you put in place, the legal system allows for that to happen. But... I think that it is about time that we begin to agitate for that, that South Africa must recognize the reality of most South Africans and create legal systems as well as policy frameworks to respond to the needs. It's the systems. Yeah. And it it always comes back to this. You know, if you're thinking about anything currently that really is just a hurdle, 
yeah. and us moving forward as Africans, as women in, in any area that we're actually trying to progress in, that we're yeah. trying to break through in. Mm. The issue is the system. We decolonize completely. We need to decolonize the, the system. That's the agenda. We need to that's decolonize the, the systems. And I always say that though, while we need to decolonize the systems, we need to dis- dismantle the systems. We also need to have a very clear picture of when we dismantle, what are we building? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's the, the conversation I want us to have now in terms of we need to decolonize, but maybe let's start with, we need to decolonize, right? Dismantle the system. But what does that look like? I mean, so there have been movements in the past in South Africa and Africa across the world that have swept through and that have seen changes for women. I mean, remember women burning their bras and that <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> so what are the kind of movements that you think have moved us forward before? And I'm asking this because maybe we can borrow some sort of inspiration about the level of agitation that we need in order to start to see change? What are some of the movements that you think we've seen throughout history that have really propelled us forward? Hmm. I think I struggle with that. Um, I really struggle with just imagining history and looking at things in inspiration from Mm. history. Mm. I think purely because our systems existing systems and historical systems were based off of the white man's idea of what the system should be sure. and what society should look like. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to borrow from history, we're, we're borrowing from the resistance to the white man versus the building mm. for ourselves. Absolutely. So I struggle with, I struggle with the idea of looking to history to try and frame the future. Um, we need to start looking at where we're at now and what the ideal future looks like for ourselves and our children. Um, and it's literally going to take a switch one off and switch the other on and a transition into that. Um, we know what we need. We know what the ideal future, I think, looks like. Uh, you know, the, just, just the other day we were having a conversation um, on decolonizing the doula practice. So as, as a doula and as midwives, for example, there are so, there are so many barriers to entry to being a doula and a midwife. But these are things that we know, like, existed. Yeah. When we were born. Yeah. These are things that, um, many of our mothers were born in, at home. Yes. In huts with assistance being their mother, or an aunt, or somebody from down the road, there was a birthing mother in the community. Mm. Now, the same birthing mothers cannot work in hospitals because there's a particular set of stuff that they need to do and education that they need to have that is in English mm. or mm. Afrikaans. Yeah. yeah. There's no provision for them to study that, that in their language, yeah. where they are. Sure. Doulas, for example, we need to do community service in order to get your certificate. But in some cities, public hospitals don't allow doulas to practice there. So they have to come practice in Joburg. Some will come from Northwest to come practice in Joburg for their doula certification. Or they'll come from Mpumalanga to come practice here in Joburg for their mm. doula certification. 
um, doula certification programs are run by white women, mm. most majority of them in this mm. country. Sure. Midwife practices um, and certifications are in systems that are built and are, were built for the colonial system. And then to practice being a midwife, it's within the frameworks and systems of whiteness. So these are the kind of the things that we, the reset that needs to happen, needs to happen with us looking to what is our ideal space. Sure. The ideal is that we need to take midwives and doulas and place them within our communities. But we cannot do that if we don't have our doulas and midwives going back into communities and teaching in the languages of our people, in the context of our people to save our, our, our black people. We're dying at a higher rate as, as black women yeah. in childbirth. From what you're saying, what I'm hearing is, and even beyond the context that you're speaking about now, mm. I'm hearing that we need to build parallel systems. Exactly. Yeah, build parallel systems. Yep. Let me, let me, let me start with answering that question and that I'll come to the parallel systems because I think that's such an important point. Um, I mean, it's easy to think about historic movements, right? Globally, the Beijing platform, for instance, that changed the atmosphere about what the role of women was mm. across industry and, and policy spaces. In, in Africa, as we were bu bu busy building the African Union, um, the Maputo Protocol and that movement was a way of essentially, it was almost like taking a hammer on top of African presidents' heads and saying, you cannot talk about Africa's liberation without, without thinking woman. about what is the representation of women in your own parliaments and, yeah. and, and um, you know, cabinets, but also just across the board. And so the whole idea around quotas in, in Africa was introduced through the Maputo Protocol. One of the stories I love is the story of the Liberian women and how they stopped the war in Liberia by simply just saying, we're not going to tolerate this and our husbands are not going to go onto the streets. And they basically brought to a standstill a genocide that had been going on forever, right? Arab Spring. And the Arab Spring, Arab Spring. is another, another example. Um, I could say so much more about the Arab Spring, but I'll leave that. So the, the one of the threads that ran across that is something that you touched on, actually, was women coming together and saying enough. And then beginning to say, there's a, there's another way of doing this and we're going to show you how. And that's where the parallel systems come in. It's not that women buy into the system and then say, well, just kind, kind of try and fit in. It's women coming into a system and saying, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a U10 and this is the direction. One of the things then we forgot, I think, um, in the last maybe two decades or so, um, we're rebuilding now is the power of collective voice. The power of essentially coming against a difficult system and saying just by virtue of our collective coming together, there's a spiritual thing to that mm -hmm. and there's a real actual tangible result to that where you are essentially saying we're putting a full stop on this historic tre trend mm -hmm. and we are going to insist that there's a different way, which means you have to have clarity around vision. And um, and prehistoric times, pre-colonial times, we know that women played central, central role in economies, in governance systems, etc. And I think that the boldness we need now, I mean, I think about South Africa since 1994, and I think the story that we were sold was that you must make it as an individual. 
What a load of mess we yeah. learned for years. Terrible we were habit. like, I have to make it on my own. And then you discover that you create a platform like yours where you're pulling women together. Mm. And suddenly they have access to markets that they didn't have, you know, because colla- collective collaboration is the energy of the moment. And it's, it's the, the thing essence of who women are. Collaboration. Which is why cooperatives work so well and mm-hmm. the stock files work so well in SA. But we, it took us too long to, to remember that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we're circling back to now. We're like, mm-hmm. okay, I am standing on my own. I'm not doing it. I don't have to. I don't, I don't have, have to. In fact, I can't thrive when I do. Mm-hmm. And actually that's the whole concept of Ubuntu. Yeah. And it's, it's why this platform and this space is called Ubuntu because quite honestly, we can be doing all these things in our silos, um, even as nations. Yeah. You know, we, we can be sitting as South African women and going, here's what we're doing. But there's so much more we can do mm-hmm. when we're collaborating with women from across the continent, when we're learning from women from across the continent. Yeah. I want to talk more about the parallel systems. <laughs> because, Namsa, you said um, there is an environment that women operate in, the environment that women operate in, is made to stop them in their tracks yeah. or it stops them. It was never made for us to thrive. Yeah. And you then said, we'll do what it takes to destroy anything that stops women in their tracks like that. Right. And while we're talking, while always was talking, one of the things that's really becoming clear is that part of doing whatever it takes and part of that stopping is the parallel systems. How can we, what are the, tangible, practical ways that we can start building practical systems. I mean, you've just made such a great example of it, you know, when you were talking about the doula, the doula certification. But what are the other ways, um, you know, in, in, in economy that are practical and that are, that are real and are tangible that we can, that we can, ways that we can do this? Hmm. What a question. Um, you know, I, I, I love making um, this example when it comes to um, just doing things our way with the barriers to entry that we're dealt with. So during the lockdown, um, well, sorry, not during the lockdown, when the vaccines were opened for, for older people, we we sat with my husband and, you know, we were saying, how how do we ensure that the people in a community, especially the elderly in a community, get vaccinated and the access to these vaccines get to them. Because the effort to go to a clinic and to have to go and, you know, initiate the process on Domtala to go get vaccinated is, is actually a pretty big deal. It's it's not it's not a small feat, right? To have been sitting at home all this time and then to be educated on what this vaccine does um, and how the vaccine works and to be vaccinated. Mm. So we then, my sister-in-law is in Pulukwane. We said, okay, take a notebook. This is what we did when there was a funeral at home, right? You take a notebook and you go from the top of the street to the bottom of the street Mm. and you make a roster of all the elderly, right? Go door to door. Are you vaccinated? Are you not? Can I please have your name, your ID, your name, surname, ID number, number, if you're comfortable? Let me help you register. Yeah. yeah. You know, door to door. And ensure that they make it to the clinic when the vaccine date is. Yes, they... 
And it's simple things that have always existed sure. in our spaces that we just need to just go back to. Mm. Let's mm. just go back to those things that we know have always been there. Yeah. And just make the process and ease the process in. We don't have to recreate things. now. But now, you know, people will say, but you don't have permission to be taking people's data. You don't have permission to be collecting ID numbers. <laughs> and, and it's simple things like ask for permission. Yes, yeah, just ask. They've given me permission. Yeah. It's, you know, they've given me permission. Yeah. Do, do you accept that you've given me permission? You know? Yeah. So it's just going back to the simplicity of how we did things. Stockfell. The banks were forced to open up Stockfell accounts. Yeah, because we went back to who we were. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's. I think we we, we overthink and overcomplicate because again we're pushing against systems that were not created for us. They were created yeah. for whiteness yeah. and white males. Yeah. And for as long as we just don't go back to our own parallel systems that existed already, we're gonna keep falling back into the rut of trying to play by the rules, and nothing will be achieved for us by us. Stockfells. Oh my word. I mean, for me, that is such a, such a beautiful picture of exactly who we've always been collaboratively, mm -hmm. who we've always been, people who collaborate, people who build together. And I mean, it takes away from this idea of, first of all, I've got to make it on my own, but also the pride and the arrogance of making it on your own, mm -hmm. right? It, there's a humility to it. Mm -hmm. There's a humility to working collaboratively and building things together. Um, the idea of you could buy land. Yeah. You could buy land together mm. and work that land together. Mm. You could buy land together and build homes on that land together. But because you're buying it together, it makes it accessible. Yeah. Whereas if you're trying to do that alone, it's less accessible. When we talk about this idea of parallel systems, I'm also reminded of the media space, mm. for instance. You know, there's opportunity for stuff like this. Mm. Yeah. Which is podcasts. Right. Um, you know, in, in, in television, there's all sorts of spaces that make it accessible to start creating content because media is actually such a powerful tool. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is the most powerful tool, um, when it comes to change and when it comes to kind of reframing, um, who we are and restoring and rebuilding. Having said all this, I believe that there's a rewiring of the mind that has yeah. to happen. Yeah. And we need to be open to different ways of doing things. And we need to not be married to what Olwet is describing as actually oppressive, mm. oppressive systems. And mm. what Namsla is describing as systems that were never built for us to thrive in. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, and I completely agree with the point you made earlier on actually about let's, let's figure out what worked for us and build on that. However, I do think that we need to kind of think about taking it a step further to 21st century intelligence and innovation. So for me, something like an online marketplace, mm. which is something that you know very well about, mm. is a brilliant example of an alternative system. Mm. When we take a stock fell and we say like 40, 20, 30 years ago, when we began to develop this into a marketplace in SA, that was a great step. But we actually do need to take it further because stock files at the moment are a consumer-focused um, 
drive right yes. so yes. we collect all this money and then we give it to each other and we spend it all yes. by the end of the year yeah. however if you were to take that and redirect it to investment mm-hmm. as you were saying as an example that's mm-hmm. 21st century thinking Absolutely. it's kind of like saying we own something we were but we're taking it to the next level but transformation of the mind for me is so so critical not not just generally but for women specifically because i think one of the advantage of having to get over the bantu education system is the entitlement to innovation in other words owning the entitlement owning the capacity for innovation that i can actually think differently and i can do it differently and i think that by and large in this continent we don't have i mean not not in this continent in this country we don't have that mm-hmm. if you compare innovation capacity for instance according to studies between sa and other parts of the continent there's much much higher levels outside mm-hmm. the country because people try this and they try that and they try that mm-hmm. because they are they they come from a very different education system so the idea the ability to develop parallel systems for me it's number one having the idea that you can and that the the space is wide open for us to yeah. do that like in the last few days we've just been listening to you know the leaders in um KZN and the Eastern Cape talking about the eastern seaboard development now you will remember those who are not from this part or that part of the country between KZN and all the way to East London there's literally no development along the coastline right mm. like none whatsoever mm. the development starts from island and all the way to the mm. western cape so the leaders in these countries the two premiers basically came together in these areas and they said we're going to create smart cities in these areas but we want to make sure that this development which will then also entail the rerouting of the n2 we want to make sure that we bring investors in halfway through that that conversation the department of women had to come in and say have you spoken to women in these areas mm. what is their role going to be so yesterday there was a briefing session with a large group of women from KZN ordinary women who are entrepreneurs where the premiers were saying listen this is what we're planning blue oceans economy energy etc etc you come to us and you tell us what you're ready to do so then it's going to have to be the women there who figure out how do we take possession of these opportunities but that can't happen because it's an ecosystem issue mm. so the woman that kind of like was doing some little thing around her area now has to figure out who do i collaborate with mm. but someone else in the middle of the system needs to come in and say to her in order to set up a cooperative and get money from NEF which has been designed to support black cooperatives but someone who knows that needs to come into this environment and say i live in Joburg but i have access to knowledge from NEF and i'm just going to help you set up a cooperative that's going to allow you to buy land or to own access to some energy whatever initiative so that so 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 what i'm what i'm saying is like the sophistication of actually parallel systems must work it can't just be campaigns mm-hmm. it must be people who are willing to say mm-hmm. i'm going to take the next three years to figure out what a blue oceans economy is mm-hmm. and i will go to coffee bay and i'll help them to do fish farming because i'm working on legacy i'm working on a future where we can say in coffee bay we can't rely on the fish that are in the ocean because they are quotas but we can farm fish here mm. and the sardines that are eaten in south africa can come from this area but they're not going to figure that out because they don't have access to the information that 
you have access to. Mm. So then a me must exist to ask the premiers, where are women? Mm. So I'm there in the policy space. Another intelligent person must exist in a place that says, this is the system, the framework you need to structure your business in such a way that you can take up this opportunity. And they must connect to the women on the ground that are going to then say, we'll do the work. We're here. We've been doing the work. And the dance between that system essentially creates the magic ecosystem we're looking for. And I think every single South African woman in particular needs to recognize this because for the longest time, I didn't think legacy. Mm. I didn't know it was my right as a woman to think legacy. So I always thought income and I always thought personal savings, but I never got to a stage where, cause my dad was always legacy and my husband was always legacy, but I'm divorced. And so like now what happens? Now what? And I have children. So then it was like the mind transformation of saying, no love, you can't, don't buy this car right now. Mm. Think legacy. What are yes. we building? What do yeah. we want to do in the next five years? Yeah. And if you can then redirect your investments and resources mm. to this, area in 10 years time you're going to be thinking a different story but i'm an educated master's level brilliant human being mm. and i'm not boasting mm. but it took me a very <laughs> long time but it, <laughs> but it took me a very long time mm. to think this way like yeah. until i was in my 40s where i was like no hang on mm. we're building you talked very early on in our conversation about building and building is not my thing it's not like yeah. a personal thing it's mm. because if i make millions and then everything else is falling apart and then June, July of last year happens, whatever I've built falls into pieces, Absolutely. right? So it is like a, it's, it's like a real spiritual transformation that we must get to. Sure. I feel like this conversation is just beginning and now we have to wrap <laughs> up. Like, <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm so blown and so moved by not just the practicality, because I love that, and mm. and this is why we're here to get to a place. And where this is we're why talking. we need more women. We in, need in more spaces. women in spaces to because talk the practicality, the practicality, right? To get in there and see we it. get it. Yeah. We're not talking high level. We're not no. talking, you know, flimsy big words jargon. Yeah, it's yeah. practical. It's practical. This stuff. is how we get the work done. Yeah, exactly. I love it for that, exactly. and I love it for I love it for the spirituality of it. Mm. Of let's also now tune ourselves to legacy mm. yeah. you know We're and building. let's 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 transform everything about ourselves and rewire everything about ourselves to be ready mm. to build for legacy yeah. so we have to wrap up now <laughs> <laughs> we have to wrap up now and only to i i want to hear from you just before we go what would you say to women across the continent about this idea of building, you mm. know, to a specific woman, mm. to an individual woman, what would you say to them about building? What is, mm. what should building look like? What should they be keeping in mind about building? Not just for them, but as Namkla says, for community. Mm. I had a conversation with my husband and we, we, we constantly talk about what we want to leave for our children. What, you know, what do we want to, if anything were to happen to us in this moment today, what do you want to leave behind? And I'm always like, I want to be the best Lozi. And in order to do that, I need to give my best in this world and in how we move in this world. Um, in our office, one of the biggest mottos is it's not about you and it's not personal. Mm. It's beyond you. 
and everything that we do, everything that we pour our hearts into, whether it's our content or our online store or how we interact with our audience or how we interact with our customers, it's not about you. So it's not about taking things personally. And I think we sometimes miss that mark as women. It's not about taking things personally. We're, we're spiritual beings. Right. It's far beyond us in how we move, what we do and the legacy that we lead and we leave behind. And I think if we focus on that, we will be able to just put aside our pride and our egos and work so much better together as women. We'll be able to go to Unobuntu, I'll be able to go to Unamsha and say, this is what I'm thinking about. This is, th- this is what I'm thinking about. Who do you think I need to bring on board here? And not pay mind to being precious about our concepts, our ideas, mm-hmm. our dreams and our aspirations, but asking for that which we need because that's the only way we'll be amazing living and posthumous um, ancestors to our children and um, their children um, should anything happen to us in this very moment that we're in. That is legacy. I love that. That is legacy. And I'm hoping that there's somebody, there's a woman somewhere, there's somebody listening who has a marketplace in some country on the continent who's thinking, ah, I want to collaborate with Olwetu. I want to send my, I want to send my products to Olwetu. Mm. I want to get stuff into my country mm. from Olwetu. We're actually building one. We're building, Yay. we're actually building um, a Pan-African um, marketplace at the moment. That's incredible. So yeah, that's, that's, that's coming. That's coming. That's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. And I hope that, you know, you'll be able to not just grow that, but also then just connect, mm. you know, with women from all over the continent yeah. um, and have real impact in each other's spaces through that. Yeah. Thank you. Sister <laughs> before we go, if I were to say to you, craft a vision for women mm-hmm. in Africa, what would it be? No limits. Sure. It would be the excellence and the, uh, the climaxing of who we are as creative, innovative beings. We are built to not just be creators, but to be accelerators. Like the, the essence of a woman is essentially I do it, but I do it with excellence, right? But also like the fruitfulness, the expansion is the nature of who, that's the spirit of a woman. And I did actually want to say, and this would be a quick sentence to say, we've talked a lot about barriers, but you've got to believe me when I say this is the era of the woman. Mm. It truly is. Everything mm. that you are seeing, Globally, locally, in governance, in business, essentially, it's almost like busting at the seams of a group of people that were caught by so many barriers, but who by nature of who they are, are literally just pushing against that so that the ecosystem and the atmosphere has to respond to them in obedience. And I think that if a woman is listening and they were hesitating, this is not the season for hesitation. It's a season for going in and going in big because this is the season of the woman. The world is ready. Yeah. The world is ready and the world needs us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe that we're at a place where we actually don't have a choice. Yeah. If the world is to survive <laughs> and if the world is mm-hmm. to prosper and thrive, we can't afford we to can't hesitate. Hold back. We can't hold we back. We can't hold back. We can't mm-hmm. see limits. I'm certainly so inspired and I'm so ignited and I'm so grateful for the work that you're both doing. Thank I'm so grateful that you could share that with us today. Um, and I look forward to more of it. 
and I look forward to just watching you prosper in your spaces um, with other women as well. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining us today. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. It's really been fun. <laughs> it's been Thank amazing. You. Thank you. Thank you for being part of the Ubuntu movement. To engage on these and other topics, follow at Ubuntu Live Talk and at Nobuntu Webster on Instagram and Twitter. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.